I'm turning this morning to Hebrews chapter 6 once again. Hebrews chapter number 6. And we'll continue through our exposition of this chapter. Uh, this morning, uh, we are uh, going to uh, pick up and jump right in to where we have been. Uh, there is the reminder here of this chapter has mostly centered on instructions that are being given uh, to those who had been clinging uh, to the old ordinances, the old shadows of Judaism. Uh, but it goes even further back by reminding us that at the end of chapter 5, the one great teaching that they were lacking understanding is in was the instructions concerning Melchizedek and the priesthood of Christ and how those two things went together. Uh, the writer of Hebrews at the end of chapter 5 declared that their spiritual state was as that of babies and that they were still under uh, a grip of the ordinances and the requirements of the law. Uh, these were people who were clinging very tightly to Judaism and were not breaking free from that which had had them in its grasp. Uh, they were dull of hearing, the writer says, uh, when they should have been teachers. Uh, they were needing to be taught again uh, the very first oracles or the first things of God. He used illustrations such as milk, and they were in need of meat, but they were not capable of receiving that meat yet. Uh, they had lacked the maturity that they needed. Uh, as long as they were obsessed, if we'll use that word, uh, with the ordinances, the shadows, they were never going to be able to move on in, in their walk with God himself. Uh, today, uh, we see a lot of this similar characteristics in what we refer to today as ritualistic Christendom. In other words, we have a lot of Christianity that's based upon ritual. It's based upon the things that we do, the things that we act out, the things that we portray. That was the case of many of these Hebrew Christians. Uh, they were caught up in the ritualism of all of the shadows, all of the things that once were, and they were missing the reality of the substance, which we've talked about that substance uh, was Christ. Uh, now, I gave us two main headings last week moving into this to break up this chapter. And the first eight verses, uh, I gave us the heading of a return to Judaism crucifies the Son of God a second time. A return to Judaism crucifies the Son of God a second time. And then really from verse 9 to verse 20, the writer spends time reminding them of better things in Jesus Christ that brings sure comfort and hope. So really, there's a return and a reminder. A return to Judaism, which is at the heart of this, is what the writer really has us cent centered on. Uh, remember, uh, the design of this chapter is all about a warning to not go back. Uh, remember, we've talked about that moving forward is the proper direction that let us go on to perfection. And we talked about how that let us go on was to be carried by the Lord, to be carried in the proper direction, to be properly carried to the things of Christ. What the writer wanted the people to know is that Judaism had its, it had its place. The law had its purposes. There was a reason it was given. But if you stay there and depend upon the law as your means of redemption, it is going to lead to your destruction. 
He is not saying that those things did not have value. The shadows had great value. The shadows and the pictures and the types were even helped by them today. But he wanted them to move forward. He wanted them to move beyond those things. And so he has this in mind as he writes. And really, these headings are broken up into uh, really what will break down even further into consideration. So the first consideration under this return to Judaism, crucifying the Son of God a second time, is what is seen in these first three verses, which is really an exhortation to leave the beginnings of the Christian religion and go on to contemplate the higher things. The elements that he talks about there are mentioned at the end of verse 1, and they go into verse 2. The elements or the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith towards God, the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of the hands, and of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Now, as Christians today, we probably recognize all of those elements. We recognize all six of those things, or at least I hope we do. We can identify with repentance from dead works. We can identify with faith towards God. We can identify with the doctrine of baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Where the difference comes in, and I'm going to be very general today, where the difference comes in is the, the, de the defining characteristics that Judaism had towards these things. Each one of those six elements had a bit of a different meaning to them that is different than what in Christ would have revealed. In other words, in Judaism, there was repentance. Uh, in Judaism, there was faith. Uh, in Judaism, there were baptisms, although in the Old Testament specifically, there were many ceremonial washings, which is the baptisms would have resonated with the people. There were the laying on of hands. There was, there was a concept of the resurrection of the dead. Although we know in Jesus' day, even the Sadducees denied the resurrection. They said there is no resurrection. But remember, all of these things are being centered on the understanding of Melchizedek. And, and we're going to get into that in chapter 7, more specifically about how the priesthood of Christ and the, the, the idea of Melchizedek go together. So this exhortation was that you need to move beyond the first elements of these things. Those are the very nature of Christianity. They are the first principles. They're indispensable. But what he is saying is you've got to move beyond what Judaism and the law taught us about that. We have to understand, where does Christ fall into this? Where is Christ become the fulfillment, the substance of all of those shadows? Now, there is a lot of controversy between the end of verse 2 and down through verse number 6. Uh, this is where the controversy starts as to who was the writer writing to. Was he writing to people who were actually saved? Or was he writing to people who thought they were saved? Or was he writing to people who weren't saved at all? When we get there, we're going to understand that there's, a, there's really a combination of things that the writer has in mind here. But you'll notice that as he tells them they must move beyond this in verse 2, he gives where this comes from. He says, this will we do if God permit. 
Now again, this goes all the way back to the very first uh, expression we talked about last week, let us go on to perfection. As God permits us to be carried on and moved forward, uh, he's, he's, he is not denying uh, that this is not something we just set out to do. God, God has to open the mind and open the will to, be, to want to move on to these higher things. But in verse number four, he begins to warn them about something. And he warns them by using a phrase that really sets off the next few verses. For it is impossible. Okay, now we're, we need to take this really in, in the literal sense in what it's saying. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of the Lord and the powers of the world to come, comma, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, this is where the controversy starts to arise. There are commentators, good men, who throughout the years have taken the position that verses 4 through 6 are strictly talking about people who can lose their salvation, and then there are others who say there are people that are saying these were false professors. There's two different divides on this. And those, there, is a, there is a faction of Christians who do believe that you can lose your salvation. Now, we could argue about that and have a whole sermon on that. But that's the position that they take. Um, it would probably shock you if I gave you some names of people who take that position. That you can actually lose your salvation is what he was talking about. But this, this letter and this, this chapter specifically is being addressed to anybody who's professing that they are in Christ. So if a person professes that they are in Christ, if they say this is, this is what's happened to them, this is, this is where they stand... If they have a true faith, okay, then it is impossible for those who have that true faith to fall away from it. Now, that's where the controversy comes in. Well, what does he mean by when he says, if they shall fall away? Who is that falling away? Who is he referring to? So the warning here is against apostasy. The warning here is a complete rejection of Christ. Some people have asked the question, what is apostasy? Is apostasy somebody who used to be a believer and fell away from it? Or is apostasy somebody who was never a believer and now they have totally, completely rejected Christ? Apostasy is a complete rejection of Christ. It's a complete denial of his, of his purposes. It's a not denial of his redemption. It is to look at Christ and say, I deny everything that has to do with you. That's truly apostasy. Now, if a person could, and I'm using that term, emphasis, could apostatize, if, if a believer could, then it would be impossible to renew them again. What he is saying is, is that they could not fall away from grace and be renewed once again. They could not, after being real, true Christians, apostatize and be recovered. In other words, if this is possible for a true believer to be guilty of apostasy, they could never, ever, ever come back. Their fall would be irrevocable. 
They could not return. Why? Because the only way to restore them would be to crucify Christ again. Now that, that concept, and that, that's where this is getting deep, their, their fall would be a fall that's final because there is no other way for a person to be saved apart from Christ. The law can't do it. The shadows couldn't do it. Only the substance, which is Jesus Christ, could do it. So if I am to turn my back totally and fully to Christ, how else could I be saved? There is no other way. Again, what were they clinging to? They were clinging to the rituals of the Old Testament or the old rituals of Judaism. They were clinging to the things that should have just been foundational to pointing them from the shadows to the substance which is found in Christ. To reject Christ fully would be to reject Christ to a place where they would never, ever, ever be brought to heaven. Now that consideration that the writer is bringing us to leads us to ask this question. Is that why he's so focused on the danger of going back? Really what's happening here, do they have real hopes in Christ or do they just have a faith that they think is in Christ? Is there really a profession here or is there just what it is, a profession? Are they truly converted? If a person is truly in Christ, folks, we know scripturally, if a person is truly in Christ, it is impossible to lose that. We would have to disregard all the other scriptures that says no one can separate them out of the hand of God. So this cannot be, he cannot be saying if a real believer falls away. Because if a real believer can fall away, everything we've talked about to this point just falls apart. It has nothing to stick to. So what then is his point. Now remember, Hebrews 5 gives us a lot of insight as to what's happening. Remember, he said they're dull of hearing. You should be teachers. He's not telling them you're these unbelieving, horrible people, but you should be teachers. But the problem is, is you're not advancing far enough. You're just kind of what's referred to, you're just nominal in your Christian walk. You should be moving further away from those things of Judaism and moving into the true and seeing Christ in all these things. The question has to be asked, how else could a person be saved? Is there something better than Christ? Is there a righteousness better than Christ? There isn't. If a true believer could fall away, as some people teach, it would require a couple of things. Not only would Christ have to go to the cross, but that would require a second incarnation. He would have to come again and take on a robe of human flesh a second time. He would have to go to the cross a second time. He would have to be put to shame a second time. And there would have to be a second regeneration of people. In other words, a whole new crucifixion would have to take place. Jesus Christ, the book of Hebrews teaches us, came to this earth and he died once. And he's only going to die once. That incarnation was once. These are the truths in which he was talking about. To do that, to fall away, would require, if it could happen to a true believer, then they would have to crucify Christ all over again. And pardon the expression, but that ain't happening. He's not going to be crucified again. So if you went home and studied today and you said, I'm really going to dig into what the preacher said today, and I would encourage you to do so. Look at those verses and look at the various opinions that you're going to get on that. There are people who will dogmatically say verses 4 through 6 only has to do with fake believers. 
It only has to do with that. But I think it's a combination of both. I think there is the idea that there are those who claim to be in Christ. There are those who claim to be one of His who aren't truly. All throughout the Old Testament, the Bible talks about there being a mixed multitude of people. Not everybody who crossed the Red Sea was a believer in God. Not everybody who saw that miracle trusted in God. But yet within that, there were those who were truly His, and then there were those who were not. The people that ultimately fall away, who apostatize, are not true believers who were truly in Christ. They are people who were never in Christ to begin with. But they totally reject, and that rejection, if it stays in that rejection, they become irrevocable. They're not coming back from that. This leads him into this concept of verse 7, for the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. This is really a, an exhortation with an illustration, and it gives us a picture that's being drawn, and he's drawing from the concepts of agriculture. He's giving an illustration of rain, and he's talking about that the earth which drinks in the rain, it takes in what the rain is. When it comes upon it, it brings forth a crop. It brings forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed. It's the concept of a farmer who plants seed in the, in the fields. When the rain comes, the rain allows that and nourishes and makes that seed grow. It brings forth fruit. It brings forth produce, right? But then he talks about, but that which bears thorns and briars is rejected. In other words, that which does not receive that rain is like briars and thorns, and it's rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end it is to be burned. When they went out in those fields, they would harvest the true crops, they would harvest the real fruit, and what did they do with the rest of it? They burned it. The idea here is really drawing that direct line between those who are truly have received the grace of God and those who have not received the grace of God. Those who have not received the grace of God, truly been converted, are subject to destruction. Those who have are going to bring forth not only the blessings, but they are going to produce and bring forth fruit. That means a true believer is going to advance in their maturity and move away from the shadows and move towards the substance that's found in Christ. So this, this rain is really a picture of what God's grace does. And it's a picture of what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ does. It would be impossible for that which is destroyed, which is a picture of the thorns and the briars that's rejected, it would be impossible to return. They could not be renewed. They could not be saved if they totally apostatize and reject Christ. So if you sit here today, and you walk out of here and you say today, I am 100% fully, totally rejecting Jesus Christ. There is no way back for you there other than through Jesus Christ. You're never going to find another way because they're not going to crucify Jesus Christ again. There is no other way than his blood. There is no other way than his grace. You would have no other options. So an apostate has no way of renewal. An apostate has no way to enter into the kingdom of God apart from the grace of God and apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. That which is a blessing comes from God. That which is a curse 
also comes from God. We understand that, but we also understand that it is the rejection that he has in mind here. Now, for the remainder of the chapter, beginning there in verse number nine, and here's how we know he was talking about believers that were there because he uses a word that's reserved for believers. Look what he says at verse nine. But beloved, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. This is that second half that gives them a reminder of the better things in Jesus Christ that brings a sure comfort and a sure hope. He says he hoped and he is persuaded of better things of you. There's no doubt that he was referring to the fact that they had begun to go back. That grip of Judaism had, it, had them in their grips and they were starting to inch back towards those things, moving away from the substance back to the shadows. There's no denial of that. But he's not calling them apostates. But he's saying, instead of moving more towards it, you're starting to inch back to the things that you know are not the complete perfection. So as he's encouraging them, he says, you still have reason for hope. You haven't made all the advancements that you should. That's why he called them babes, when you should be teachers. He wouldn't say you should be a teacher if you were not one of the beloved. You should be teaching, but what's happened is you have started to regress. You started to go back. Now that goes all the way back to the very first week when we started this chapter and I made the comment that this is not just about Christian immaturity and maturity, but it is in a way talking about moving on in your Christian maturity, but don't, don't disjoint it from the Judaism. It was what the, was what the context was. They have reason to hope. Why? Because they are not going to wholly apostatize from him. He's not saying you're apostates, you're apostates, you're apostates. He's just saying you're receding, you're moving backwards instead of moving forwards. Ultimately, if they're not apostates, then they're not going to be cast off by God. He doesn't announce to them, but beloved, you're getting ready to be cast off. No, instead, for the next few verses, he goes on and reminds them of their certainty and their surety in God. They had shown that they did have true faith. And the writer believes that God would not forget the evidence which they had provided by demonstrating that they did love him. There are people today who really struggle with the reality who say, I'm, I know I'm in Christ Jesus today. I know I'm converted. I know I'm saved. I know I've repented. And they'll use this falsely. They'll say, but I'm afraid of being an apostate. If you're in Christ, you cannot totally apostatize from him. Now, is there the reality and possibility that a person who thinks they're in Christ is not in Christ? Yes, there can be. But if you are truly in Christ, if you're truly converted, if you're truly saved, you will never be declared an apostate and you will never be fully cast off and you will never be fully destroyed. That's the point. Now, was there a mixed, quote unquote, multitude when he wrote to the Hebrews? Certainly there was. Were there people that were in danger of apostasy? Sure. Was, was the writer saying all of you are beloved? No, there were people within that group who he would have said, but beloved, you who are in Christ, I am persuaded of better things for you. 
I'm persuaded of it. The things that accompany salvation. Look what he says. He gives them these, these great promises. He says, but God is, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. They were showing signs of true conversion. And he's expressing to them, God is not unrighteous to forget you, to forget your work, to forget your labor, and cast you off as apostates. And we desire, now watch this, and we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. He's expressing this great desire that they would be as diligent in moving towards the things of Christ, now get this, as they were in their diligence towards the shadows. Okay? They're diligently, they're moving back and they came out of those shadows, the Old Testament pictures and the types. And he said, our hope is, is that you'll be as diligent in moving forward towards Jesus Christ as you were moving towards the shadows. But notice what he says, this diligence brings something. This diligence brings the full assurance of hope into the end. Have you noticed today hope has been a theme? Since we start at 10 o'clock this morning, we have talked about hope. We've talked about hope in the call to worship. We've talked about hope in our study this morning. Hope, 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 and an assurance of hope. Where is that full assurance of hope found? Look what he says, verse 12, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now he's going somewhere with that. He says, I'm getting ready to introduce you to people who had full assurance of hope that was found in Christ. Ultimately, the writer of this chapter and the entire book of Hebrews wanted these Hebrew Christians to understand, yes, you are moving backwards and you shouldn't be doing that. You need to be moving forward. And I want you to remind you that as you move forward, you have a full assurance of hope that's found now in the substance, which is Christ himself. There's no reason for you to look back. If you're truly in Christ, you're not an apostate. You're not, you're not an apostate. That's impossible for you to fall from grace. Now, you might have times when you fall down. You might have times when you even deny Christ. Peter denied Christ, but he wasn't an apostate. Ultimately, after that denial, we know that God himself and Christ uses him in a greater way than he ever used him before. An apostate is a total and full rejection. Folks, I can't point them out to you, and you can't point them out to me, but there are people in this world today that are full-on apostates who will never, ever, ever have any desire to come to Christ at all. They are full rejectors of Christ. The writer is telling them that's not you unless you are fully rejecting Christ as the substance. So to encourage them, he continues to refer them to people they would clearly identify with. To encourage them in this, in verse number 13, all the way through verse 20, he reminds them of the solemn oath which God had taken and the covenant he made with them that was confirmed in order that they would have true hope, true consolation, and be sustained. He uses an example of one of the greatest heroes in all of, uh, for, for every Jew is Abraham. He says in verse 13, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself saying, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. 
For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein, I love this, God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. Now he's taken all of those things that Abraham as the example was, and he's saying, I want you to know, Abraham was not just this figure. Abraham was not just this person. Abraham was part of this oath that God was making with you and part of the confirmation that was made through an oath. And it's so strong, so secure that God swore by himself. He made the oath himself and he confirms it himself. Folks, I could make a lot of promises to you and I could even say I'm going to confirm that promise, but you have no guarantee I'm going to keep it. You have no guarantee that I'm going to come through with what I've said. But God said, I confirm my promises and my covenant. I used Abraham as part of the confirmation of that covenant. I will keep my promises. God made promises to Abraham, and Abraham responded in obedience. When God commanded Abraham to take Isaac and take him up to Mount Moriah, that wasn't, that wasn't Abraham being saved. It was Abraham responding as a believer in obedience, knowing the promises of God. And that's why he brings this in. He's telling them that the hope that Abraham had is the hope that you have. Abraham's faith was certain. Abraham's faith was steadfast. Abraham's faith was confirmed. Now notice again what he says in verse 18 as part of this, as part of this encouragement. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for God to lie. If God commits a single lie, everything is off. If God lies, the redemption and the atoning work of Christ is off. It's no good. It has no, it has no basis. It has no merit. If God could lie a single time. Notice he says, not only can God not lie, it's one of the two immutable things. Immutable means unchangeable. It doesn't change. That's important because he's telling them that the covenant that God made with Abraham is the same covenant God's made with you. And if he's going to keep his promises to Abraham, he's going to keep his promises to you. So that you will have a full assurance of the hope that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. You can see the writer saying, I want you to now see the hope that's before you. Stop looking at all the shadows and stop looking at all the types and stop looking at all that and look at the hope that is now set before you. Who is the hope? The hope is Jesus Christ. My hope is not found in those shadows. My hope is found in the substance, and that's Christ. Any other way that I look that is separate from Christ is unsaving. If it's not Christ, it's nothing. If my whole hope 
My whole consolation is not based in Jesus Christ, based upon the promises that God swore by himself because he could swear by no greater. And he gave us Abraham as the example that Abraham would be a blessing and he would be the father of many nations. Folks, Abraham is, is all about who you are in Christ. If Abraham doesn't exist, what are you going to do with the book of Romans? Because Paul even acknowledged in Romans that because of Abraham, you have now been grafted in. Paul was not talking about being grafted in because you were keepers of the law and because you were observing the shadows. You've been grafted in because of Christ who is your hope. Now when we get into chapter 7 and we talk about Melchizedek specifically, why that connection matters, the writer wants us to consider and wants them to think about the possibility of apostasy, not for the true believer, but for those who were not truly in Christ. He's telling them, be diligent to make your salvation sure. The certainty of our salvation is not based upon what you said or what you did. The certainty of your salvation is based on Christ alone. If you, and I say this many times, if your certainty of your salvation is based upon what you prayed alone, you are standing on a crumbling foundation. That is not the foundation of salvation. That is not what he refers to in just a moment. That's not the anchor of your soul. An anchor is something that holds whatever it's attached to in place. The purpose of an anchor on a ship, the purpose of an anchor on a boat is to hold the boat in place, not to drift, not to move away. That anchor of the soul is Christ. That anchor of the soul is what he ends this chapter with, and he talks about the certainty of this anchor. He says, which hope, this goes directly back to what he said in verse 18, the hope that's set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Here's where the priesthood of Christ is now coming in and Melchizedek. He's not leaving that. Because remember, that was the whole controversy to begin with. You should understand Melchizedek. You should understand how that points you to Christ, but you don't understand that. But he said, that's where the hope is. Where is the hope found? Within the veil. The hope is found within the veil. It's been confirmed by Christ who entered into heaven. How did Jesus Christ enter into heaven when he ascended back? He entered into heaven as the great high priest. He entered into heaven and as a picture Entering into heaven is the same principle of being within the veil. How do we know that he can be trusted? How do we know that it's been confirmed? Because the Father allows him to sit there at the right hand of the Father. That confirmed that everything he did was exactly as was required. Was required. His sacrifice... His accomplishment was accepted by a holy, righteous God, and Christ now is seated there as the great high priest. In order for me to get to God the Father, even to approach God the Father, I have to get through whom? I have to get through the great high priest. I've got to get there through Christ. I'm not getting there any other way. By these considerations of Christ compared to the order of Melchizedek, he wants them to consider that this is the way that guards a person from apostasy. Be diligent in your life 
to understand these principles. It is therefore what he finishes this when he says, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made and high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The application here is, is therefore those who trust in Christ and put their hope of all future glory in Christ have a strong, complete consolation. In other words, we have a sure hope in that. Folks, do you really believe that Christ is your only sure hope? And that you're not trusting in anything else? Nothing else. I can't tell you how many years it's taken me to get to the point where I understand really what it is to only trust in Christ alone. I spent years and years and years thinking I was only trusting in Christ and I was trusting in Christ and a little bit of some other things I was doing. You realize it's not the things you're doing. It's not anything you're doing. And we can't take it out of context. That doesn't give you a license to live like you want. Paul would, if Paul was standing here, Paul would say, if you think the grace of God and being in Christ means you can go have a license to do whatever you want and live however you want and sin however you want, I think Paul would look at you and say, you're not even converted. And maybe we should be that bold. Because if you're in Christ, you're not going to desire to go live how you want. You're going to want to be in obedience. You're going to want to be moving in your faith. You're going to want to be stronger and knowing more about Christ. And it might even mean you're going to take your own time and study and say, look, I need to learn more about Melchizedek myself. Because you're going to thirst and desire God's word. You're going to try to, you're going to, try to move yourself as far away from sin as you can. And you're going to try to get yourself to say, no, I want to know more about Christ. The people who think they can lose their salvation are the people who were trusting in the saving of themselves to begin with. If you truly believe the Bible that you're saved by Christ and He accomplished your salvation, assurance goes, you don't have to worry about your assurance. But if you're relying on a little bit of Christ and a little bit of you, you're going to battle this continually. Or what you prayed, or did you pray right? Did you pray it? Did you have the right attitude? Did you have the right motive? Everything is being confirmed in Christ. Not only in Christ do we have a strong anchor and a strong comfort, but we have a personal guarantee. How do we know it's guaranteed? Because verse 20 says, the forerunner is for us entered. Doesn't say he's waiting to enter. If a couple other things fall in place, he's already entered where? Even Jesus. He's entered into the priesthood. He's entered into heaven. He's there. That's a guarantee that those who are in Christ will now enter into heaven themselves. He's a high priest at the order of Melchizedek. We'll learn more about that next week. Christ is our hope. He is the forerunner and is the anchor of the soul. Christ is the anchor of your soul. It's the only, he's the only one holding you. And remember, like we've always said, this is not, does not originate with me. It's not your hold on Christ. It's his hold on you. If he leaves it to you to hold on to him, you're going to let go. But you are guaranteed, if he has saved you, you are guaranteed to remain in that state. He's our hope. He's the anchor of the soul. It anchors our faith and our hope is anchored in him who has entered within the veil. It is Christ who is seated in glory. He is the promised Messiah. He is the object of our faith. 
He is the dispenser of all the promises of God. It's in Christ alone and His work that we are made secure. That's where my security is. That's why I can stand before you with 100% certainty that if my heart stops in front of you, I know where I'm going. And I don't have a single doubt about it. Someone asked me that question. It often can be asked in a, in a wrong way. When they ask the question, are you sure when you die you're going to go to heaven? That's a loaded question in a lot of ways if that's the way you present it. But I could answer that. Yeah, I'm 100% certain because I'm not dependent upon me. I'm not dependent on anything that I do. I'm not dependent on anything that I've done. I'm not dependent upon what I've prayed. I'm not dependent upon what someone's prayed or done for me. I'm certain that Jesus Christ has saved me. How do you know that? Because the Holy Spirit that dwells within me confirms that every single day. You know, every day the Holy Spirit confirms to his own, you are one of mine. You belong to me. You have the mark that I own you. I am, I am your God. That's an anchor. That's something that's immovable. In Christ and in his work, we're all, we are made secure. Christ's presence in heaven promises and guarantees that all those that are his will ultimately receive those promises as well. Today, the question is very, very simple. Not, are you sure when you die, you're going to go to heaven? But the question is, is Jesus Christ the anchor of your soul? Is it Jesus Christ that has saved you? Or are you trying to save yourself by your works and all the things that these Christians were moving back towards? You need to go on. You need to go forward. There's no room in God's work for nominal Christianity where we're content to stay where we are. We ought to always desire to move forward and say, I want to grow in the knowledge of grace. I don't want to stay here. I want to keep moving forward. I hope this morning you can say that Christ is the anchor of your soul. If you are not in Christ, the command in Scripture is to repent and believe the gospel. Remember, repent and believe the gospel is not an invitation for you to consider. It's a commandment. And those who are Christ, we don't know the timing, we don't know the day, we don't know the hour. But when we hear the words, repent and believe the gospel, all that are Christ will one day repent and they will believe. We have great comfort in knowing that Jesus Christ is not coming back again to this earth until the last of his has been saved. I have no idea when that is. We're not told to know the seasons or the hour. We're just simply proclaim the gospel, proclaim the truth. Christ is going to save who he's going to save. But we are pro proclaimers of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray together and we'll close with a hymn to close our time today. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we do have an anchor of the soul. We have an anchor that is sure and has secured us in Christ. And Father, we do today come before you not in pride, but we humbly come before you and we thank you that those are in Christ that you've saved us. But Lord, we also know that there are some today who are still not yet converted. And we pray and ask for the Spirit. We plead with you that the Spirit, according to your will, would move and would convert them. They would recognize their need of a Savior. They would repent of their sins and they would believe on Christ alone. They would renounce any and all things that they were relying on previously. And that they would know that Christ is the only way. 
For believers here today, Father, I pray that we would not be tempted to go back. Not be tempted to go back to the things and the works that we thought once saved us. But that we would continue to move forward in our Christianity, move forward in our maturity, and grow stronger in our faith, and know our security in Christ and Him in Him alone. Lord, we pray you will dismiss us here in a few moments with your blessing and with your grace. And may your grace be upon us all as we leave. It's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen.